We're going to continue uh, a, a theme that we've been looking at over the last couple weeks, answering the question, how do we interact as believers with the non-believing world? Sometimes it uh, can be tense. It can be something where we have to navigate people speaking evil against the beliefs that we have. Um, and we have to try to find our footing in a bunch of different arenas that God has called us to live uh, for the here and now, but also with the hope of heaven. Um, so as we consider that, we're really going to come to a conclusion of some of the things we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. But let's start with just a word of humor. Uh, how many of you remember the Far Side comics? I used to love the Far Side comics as a kid. And on Sundays, they were in color. So I'm going to share a color Far Side with you. Um, and let me set up the scene. You always had to kind of look at Far Sides. We have a group of people in an elevator, and somebody brought a lion. But, uh, and he, he's now going to calm everyone's nerves. He says, don't be alarmed, folks. He's completely harmless unless something alarms him. And if you look closely, you can see the elevator doors are about to close on his tail. And we can assume that he's about to maul everyone inside. And I appreciate this comic because it stirs uh, a thought in your mind that maybe you've already been thinking if you've been reading First Peter and sitting under the preaching of First Peter. Uh, we've looked at three specific categories to answer the question of the tension for believers in a non-believing world, the authority of God intermixed with the authority of man. The three categories were the authority of government, the authority of the workplace, and the authority of a household. And Peter's saying, in every one of these arenas, the strategy for the believer is not to revolt. It is not to uh, get your way to make everything a perfect Christian world that you live in, but to do your very best to be submissive to the authorities on earth as you have hope in heaven. And the reason that it's worth thinking through that specific comic that we looked at, uh, that comic makes you ask the question or think the thought, this may not end well. As you think about what those people are about to experience, you can say, that's not going to end well for those people. And as we have interacted with Peter's exhortation to be submissive and generally agreeable, to not make giant waves in our communities or our workplace or even an unequally yoked household, some of you may have thought, some of you even mentioned, if we do that, it might not end well. If we actually submit to a government and the government's tyrannical, we may end up in chains or shackled by high taxes or worse. If we submit to a harsh and an ungodly boss, we may end up out of our sorts. We don't even have money to, to pay the bills. It's not going to end well if we do this. And last week, the, the whole message was an exhortation to, to wives who could potentially be under the leadership of a home that is not honoring to God. And you think, this might not end well. This, I might become a, a, a hired hand or a maid. I might be put in a position where I'm submitting myself in a way that is going to be oppressive and burdensome. And Peter now has an answer for you. And if we lose sight of the message that we'll look at today, indeed, the, all the previous messages will crumble under the potential that it doesn't end well. And Peter's going to give us some really helpful ways for us to endure suffering in all of the ways we have to interact with a non-believing world and non-believing authority and less than perfect leadership. The only way we can do that if 
is if we have a vision that goes beyond the specific circumstance that you're in right now. And with that in mind, Peter's going to conclude the previous three exhortations by helping us once again have a vision for a glorious payoff. And this is what he says, starting in verse 8. He says, finally. Now, that's an interesting word halfway through a letter. Peter could be just a classic preacher in this moment, concluding a message and still having 30 minutes left of preaching. But it's also a theological moment where Peter's going to say, and the end of the strategy, the end of your submissive hearts and your kindness and your non-returning evil for evil actually has something good in store. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. And here is the payoff of all of the previous weeks that we've studied. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And then he'll go on to quote from one of the Psalms, a very similar message that Peter found in the Old Testament for these believers. Know this, if you do this, and he summarizes everything that we've been talking about the last few weeks. If you're kind, if you're loving, If you, instead of retaliate, you actually pray and bless those who curse you. You're called to receive something good that God has for your lives. Wherever the Bible offers you an encouragement, there is an end game. We are not supposed to zoom in so much into the day-to-day calling and duties of our lives that we forget that God is actually working out the circumstances that we find challenging in these messages for something that is good for our lives. If you lose belief and confidence that where God encourages and exhorts, he has an end game, it will be very difficult to trust that what you're going through is worth the pain, that what you're being called to endure is worth the suffering. And so today we summarize, as Peter does, finally a conclusion to these messages by looking once again at what we're being called to do. What is the goal and where are the goalposts? How is it that you can go through the, the, the exhortation of the word and be obedient to it and keep your eye on a prize that God has for your life? This is, in, in summary of the introduction, this is a pathway to a blessing for your life. This is how God wants to bless your life. I'm happy to preach a message like this because there are so many messages in our day about how God wants to bless your life and what you can do to prosper in the kingdom of God and to receive the favor of God in your life. Today we have a somewhat counter-Christian culture answer to that question. How does God bless your life? And so we look at the verses that we've read leading up to uh, the psalm that Peter will quote. And we we see step by step, there is a few things that Peter says, if you do this, you are aligning yourself with the blessings of God. First, he has a general heart for us to love one another. There is at your very core, a blessing of God when you align yourself with the heart of God to love the family of God. So he says, finally, 
all of you. Now, the previous week's messages, we, we've taken time to say, this may not apply to you right now or, yet, or just yet. So if you have been outside of the categories we were speaking about, so last week we spoke about marriage, maybe you're not married. Previous week we spoke about the workplace, maybe you're in between jobs or you're a freelancer, you know, doing the work remote. And then the first week in this uh, section of the scripture, we talked about how you interact with government. Maybe you've been living off the grid and you're, you know, you're totally separate from anything that we've talked about. Now Peter says, okay, this is the whole family now. It's time to have a talk. If you believe in Jesus and you want to live for him and honor him, this is a message for you. And what does he say? First, be of one mind. Now, we could spend a whole sermon talking about what it means for a believer to have a unified mind with another believer. Um, but in lieu of that, we'll talk about very briefly, what it doesn't mean. Being of one mind does not mean that all of you think how I think. That makes it, it could be a very easy message if it's like, be of one mind, find people who think just like you, and eliminate the uh, people in your life that have any differing ideas or thoughts. Um, if that does happen, someone's not being honest. If you find yourself in total perfect agreement, in one mind with everything you could possibly think about, someone is just not being truthful about what they actually think. So that's not what we're called to do. This is a great time to celebrate that God in his family, in the body of Christ, there are categories of preferences and there are categories of essentials. Right now, I assume that every single one of you have made some sort of concession in your ideal worship gathering just to be here right now. Guarantee it, I get to read the comment cards. There is a variety of different preferences that exist in the sanctuary. Some of you wish that it was louder. Most of you wish it was quieter. Some of you wish it was brighter. Some of you wish we just stood in the dark and it was to glow from the stage. There is worship style preferences, and that's just this one little hour that we have together. Then we're gonna leave and we're gonna wrestle with questions about alcohol and how we should dress and the movies that we can or cannot watch if we should watch movies at all. And there is an entire category of preferences where God wants us to have a conviction by the power of the Holy Spirit. Last week when we uh, had our whole message about husbands and wives, someone came up to me and said, now what if, if I'm the leader of the home, what if my wife disagrees with me? And I told him, I hate to say it, but it's, if your wife disagrees with you, your marriage is failing. It should never happen. <laughs> that will never happen in a Christian marriage. Wives and husbands agree on everything. And I've been waiting all week to tell him I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I hope you're here. <laughs> of course I told him I'm kidding. I'm like, listen, Husbands and wives, it is an exercise in loving disagreement. It is an exercise in finding what are different preferences and how we can prefer one another, which requires a different preference. And it's also an exercise in finding your family essentials. And, and so it is with the body of Christ. Then there are essentials that we must be united and in one mind in. Uh, Here's some essentials for you that we are going to exalt today. Jesus is Savior, Lord, and King. He came to earth as the visible image of the invisible God. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for the sacrifice and the payment in full of all of our sin. Yes, all of our sin, because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He offers free forgiveness because of his grace. We have to put our faith in that forgiveness 
He rose from the grave bodily three days later. He ascended on high where he now sits on the right hand of the Father. And he is coming again. Could be today. Could be tomorrow. And the exact day, no man knows. Those things we have to agree on. And we have to agree on the essentials of Orthodox faith. We have to agree that Father, Son, Holy Spirit are the Godhead. And we also have to agree on what Peter is saying is the strategy for a non-believer or for a believer to live in a non-believing world. We have to obey and submit not only to the authorities of earth, mainly your government, your bosses, and the leadership of a household, but also to the word of God itself. And the word clearly states that believers and followers of Christ do not retaliate evil for evil. We have the same mind on that. So if some of you are vengeful and have an idea to win non-believers by the sword, we would have to say, actually on that one, you need to repent and be united with the strategy given to us by scripture. So we have one mind. And in that one mind, in one thinking for how we interact with the world, we are also moved to have similar hearts. We have a, a unity of mind and a unity of heart. Look what he goes on to say. We have compassion for one another. When one member of the body, your physical body, which is how uh, the Apostle Paul will describe the body of Christ, when one member suffers, the whole body suffers. Your headache will keep your whole body up at night. And so it is in the body of Christ. We are supposed to be moved in our heart's compassion for the nervous system of the body of Christ. Even as I was preparing this message, uh, a, a woman from our church called, and it's a mother of high school students, and she said, I am moved. My heart grieves for the youth in, raised up in this next generation in our schools right now. And of course, she was just responding to the news of more than one suicide that, has, that we've had to endure as a community in the public schools this month. That there is a weight and a burden on the hearts and the minds of the next generation that is too heavy for them to bear. And there's a member of the body of Christ that is calling and saying, can we please pray? Can we please encourage one another? Can we please be, be made available to mourn with those who mourn for children who are buried under the weight of the darkness of our age? That's compassion. One definition that I've loved for compassion is your hurt in my heart. That we are not individual members of a body. We are not individual seekers of God for individual plans that he has for our individual lives, lives but he's put us together to be moved in mind and in heart together. And then he says, love as brothers. I never had a brother. I always wanted a brother. And I, always, I would hear this verse as a great ideal. I always thought brothers were best friends and business partners their whole lives. Those of you who have brothers can laugh because you know that's not always how it plays out. But there is something true about how first century culture and culture throughout time, there is an extra special relationship that exists for family. There is something about being in kin with someone 
that when life gets hard and when life gets difficult and when, when it's time to rejoice, brothers are actually there. They may call each other to the mat and they may have ups and downs in their everyday life, but I always find it interesting when I, when I have the honor of doing a funeral that you always see the core family come together in those moments. It's the family that represents the family of God. We are supposed to be more than associates in Christ. You know, after church today, many of you will go to uh, do some grocery shopping for the week ahead, no doubt. And you get to the grocery store and you look out and it's just, for the most part, a sea of humanity. You're not really thinking of those people as, you know, someone that you need to really get to know or really pursue. And maybe you're mission-minded, so you are. But for the most part, it's like, I'm, I'm here for food and I'm going to pick the shortest line and then I'll be on my way. And sometimes... That can also describe church. It's like, I'm here for God. I want to sing some songs. I want to grab some scripture and I'm going to get to my car. and I'll be on my way. Here's the point. Look around. I know not all of you are part of the family of God. Some of you are here with, as a f- friend of a family member. But look around. These are the people that God has brought you into membership with to love each other as brothers and sisters and as family is to say, these people are in my life to build me up in my faith and to help me practice the New Testament one another's on. You can't do them alone. And as much as Peter says, you're sojourners and you're exiles and you're gonna be misunderstood by the non-believing world, he says now, but there are some people who understand you. Love them. They're your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Same verse, he says, be tenderhearted. Just be refreshed by the call this morning to be tenderhearted. Just think of sometimes when you're trying to understand what is the word calling me to do, it's sometimes easy to see the opposite, maybe easier to see the opposite. Instead of tenderhearted, sometimes we can have a callous heart. If you've ever learned uh, to play guitar, you know, those first couple weeks, it's like you're so tender, it's hard to press the strings. And then there's this layer of hardened skin that grows over your fingers and you can no longer feel it. Nice for playing guitar, not good to no longer feel with your heart. It's good to remain in that place that God gives us this entry point into the kingdom All of you entered the kingdom with a tender heart. You cannot receive the grace of God on the day of salvation that is joy. You cannot receive the the newness of life and the command to walk in it that is your baptism with a hard heart. The day one, week one, year one, however long it lasted, you had a heart that God could move. You had a heart that God's word could, could, could land in like a seed and grow and bear fruit because you wanted to receive it and you wanted to obey it. And then what happens? It's like learning an instrument. You learn how to be a Christian. You learn how to be a churchgoer. You learn how to sit in the seat you've always sat in. And if anyone else is in it, they're actually an annoyance, not a blessing. Sorry if that happened to you today. Soften your heart, please. And so just to add a little bit of theology into our liturgy, lest we think even what we're doing right now is just tradition, the preaching of the word of God week by week and gathering to sit under it 
in some ways, is God breaking up your heart every time you hear it? That you can go Monday through Saturday and you can get those calluses that just start to form and people are no longer lost souls in need of redemption. They're just uh, cars on a freeway. And then you come once again to the power of the word of God and it is described as a sword that can cut between your bone and marrow. And the heart behind the preaching of the word is that the soil of your heart would once again be turned over and fresh. That you would leave here once again saying, God, I need your word to be a lamp unto my feet. I need your spirit to empower my life to do anything good. I need your presence to bring me joy. I need prayer to accomplish anything. And if you lose that, it is time once again to hear the preaching of the word. Let God break up your heart. Have a tender heart for him. Have a tender heart for each other. And as we go through this, you're going to need a tender heart for the next steps of the strategy. Peter will say, be courteous. Now, this is very basic things that, that we're discussing today. I'm in a room full of adults and I'm saying, be courteous. I feel like a kindergarten teacher. Say please, say thank you. Say yes ma'am, no man. Say amen when you pray. And those aren't bad things to hear once again. We should be known as the strategy of this letter is often pointing us towards as the most upstanding and loving citizens anywhere we live. So courtesy is part of that. I think a better translation, if you have an ESV, it says be humble. And I think humility is necessary to get even this far in a message. Because you do hear this as Christianity 101 and what you might think is Really, I came to church to hear to be loving. I came to church and the message is be kind to one another. I think I've got it. Can we get a little bit more meat on the bone, please? I didn't come to church to hear that I need to love God and love people. Well, you did come to church to say be humble then. <laughs> this is a message that you receive over and over and over again until the day you die. That when we talk about how God wants to bless your life, loving the family of God will never be part of the test that you get to pass out of. You don't test out of this. You, you over and over again to align yourself with how God wants to bless you and care for you and give you favor and that you would love your life and all of its good days. You don't get to stop loving people as elementary as it is. And true to the message of Christ, it is both elementary and profound, all in one exhortation. Because as sure as loving the family of God is Christianity 101, the next verse that we've already read is now what separates following Christ and having a vision for how he's going to bless your life from every other worldview and philosophy of man. Verse eight, as we read this, is why Christianity is the, the mission of God on earth like no other religion that you will ever find. Because now we're not just saying to love the family of God and love the person you sit next to. 
In fact, Jesus says, if the message stopped by just by saying, hey, just love your family a little bit more, I wouldn't offend or violate the convictions of most people in the world. Everybody wants to love their family more. We're going to celebrate Thanksgiving, and it is not a Christian holiday exclusively. Everybody's traveling across the country to get closer to the ones they love because in our instinctual core, we want to be next to our family. It is a Christian ideal for the body of Christ, but if you stop there, you are not aligned with the full mission of God's way to bless your life. Verse 8 said this, or verse 9 says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Week by week by week, wherever you have to interact with the authorities of man on earth, the strategy that sets believers apart from the normal Roman citizen and the normal American citizen today is that when evil is spoken against you, when people are backbiting and gossiping and they don't like you for who you follow, you now have an opportunity to actually represent Christ to the world. How? By being totally different than human nature. <laughs> by not repaying evil for evil. That is human instinct. In fact, it's not just human instinct to repay evil for evil. Human instinct is to elevate vengeance. In Leviticus chapter 24, we're given the law where God is initially giving a mercy law that anyone who has wronged you, you'd actually have a limit to how much you could wrong them. Look what it says. Fracture for fracture. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. Now, this is the Old Testament law to say, if they get one tooth, all you get in return is one tooth. Why? Because if someone knocks out your teeth, you want to destroy their face. If someone steals from you, you want to take double. Hard enough on those extremes. This is very easy to preach, very difficult to practice. I'm praying through this entire message and, you know, I get a honk on the freeway and it's like, I got like three honks for you right now. And all of you will be tested on the streets as we leave here in a very small way. And throughout the exhortation, Peter is saying, we don't just not repay evil. We don't go back to a neutral position we are, we're, we're not going to be the aggressor, even though someone was hurtful and harmful to you. The philosophy is, of Christ is that wherever there is evil, we replace it with good. We're not neutral people. We do counter. We counter evil with good. He says, on the contrary, we don't take eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. We return harm with blessing. And so we could never read it enough. It is the Sermon on the Mount. Peter is just downstream of everything that he received from Christ he now shares with us. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist, resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you to take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. This is the light of the world. This is what makes the followers of Christ the hope of eternity. That we have the ability to end vengeance in its tracks and replace it with the heart of God to love even the enemy. Loving the family of God is the beginning. Loving the enemy is the call that will separate you from every other philosophy in the world. And he says, remember this, knowing this, you were called to this. You were called to love and bless those who persecute you. This is part of the call. It's not some emergency button that the believer is supposed to hit in case of rare circumstance. God has saved and won a certain people namely you, so that he can re reverse the chaos of the world with his people replacing evil for good. It's part of the call. So don't be surprised when they speak evil against you, when Christianity is not popular. It wasn't popular in the first century. Welcome to 21st century. You should be surprised if you're living in such a way that you blend in with culture and no one has a problem with your savior. It should be more surprising when your Christianity is so flavorless that no one ever says anything against you because you look like everyone else. Part of the calling is to actually have enemies to bless. To be a blessed peacemaker, you have to interact with some conflict. And I find it so encouraging that he says, you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And once again, Peter is lifting our eyes from the current circumstances, pointing us to hope that goes beyond today. It is a really important moment for your Christian life. God does not call you to simply begin something. It's not like he calls you to fall in love and get married. And he's like, good luck from here. I don't know how it's going to end. He calls you to the end. God does not call you to the middle. It's like he called us. We're a starter plant. A little bit of rain, a little bit of sun. Good luck growing from here. When God calls us, there is an end in mind. That's why this whole letter is written with the entire introduction of a Hope that is living beyond the grave and exists in heaven. Incorruptible, undefiable, does not perish or fade away. There is something that you have to have your eyes on. And if you lose that, you are indeed right with all of your rebuttals. It all crumbles if you're living for these circumstances and your suffering and your endurance under government and and uh, employer and household, if you don't have anything that you have hope in beyond those circumstances, it will crumble. And you may think, maybe it's better if I take matters into my own hands. 
Here's how Jesus describes the blessing that we will inherit as we follow his model, not reviling for reviling. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. Pause, blessed. When they revile and persecute you, you are walking into a blessing of God. And they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. What do you do when that happens? Rejoice. Be excited. You're walking into the strategy. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in your 501k, 401k, social security. Great is your reward as your guy gets elected in government. Great is your reward at the marriage conference. Great is your reward at your company retreat. Great is your reward in heaven. Too many believers have a theology that does not live past earth. If there is no heaven, do not endure suffering of earth. Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you die, quit your job, throw, uh, overthrow your government, leave your marriage. You ha- if you have no hope that goes beyond this earth, you have no hope. But Jesus says you can actually rejoice in the face of evil spoken against you because you are in fact living for a hope that goes beyond anything that can happen to you in this world. And so Peter says you are called to inherit this blessing. And so you have to wrestle with theology now. Where are you living? What does your hope say about the world you're living for? All of this is dependent on a belief that Christ conquered the grave. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He is preparing a place for all of us to dwell with him for eternity. And if you lose that, you lose endurance. And so finally, as Peter would say, to conclude this, there's actually three ways that Peter gives you the ability to cling to this theology. One of them is in the passage of scripture that we are going over today. It says in verse 10, for, and then your Bible may have this section italicized because Peter is actually going to quote from scripture, Psalm chapter 34. And so we read it. He says, for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Sounds exactly like everything we've been studying. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Not neutral. He replaces evil with good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then you inherit a blessing. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. One of the ways to cling to this theology is to cling to the word. Peter, to the first church that he wrote this to, was saying, this is in scripture. This was written by King David as he fled from Saul. Without going into the story in every detail, 
the first king of Israel, Saul, was chasing the next king of Israel, David. And instead of returning his evil for evil, David penned a psalm. He said, I want to love my life and see good days. I won't return evil for evil, but I will trust God. Peter says, just read the word. I say to you now, read the word. This is not a unique message. This is the message. This is the message of the Psalms and the Proverbs and the New Testament. This is the message of Christ. Read the word and cling to the word and allow your theology to take your hope beyond this world. As you read the word, you find another device that Peter uses. We actually saw this last week. Uh, chapter 3, verse 5. As Peter's encouraging women in an unequally used household, household to endure, he gives them an encouragement that's worth being encouraged by now. He says, For in, in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham. It's in the word and it's in the history. Sarah is someone that you can look at the life of. What happened when Sarah trusted God and was submissive in her way and endured all sorts of bad leadership? She received a blessing a promised child. And as you read, you see stories of the people of God. The word of God is the history of God interacting with people. And what you find is people who trust God are blessed. And you can join them. You can be someone who trusts God and say, okay, I, as I read these stories, I want to be like these people. And you will be blessed according to the promise of the word. So you have the promise of God, you have the people of God, and then you have the Son of God. And this is where all of this comes and lives and breathes and has its hope. And Peter already shared with us in chapter 2, verse 22, Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. So Jesus, the visible image of the invisible God, he who knew no sin, it is his life that we are to follow. We call ourselves followers of Christ. And to study his life is to study perfect love, blessing enemies. To study his life and to believe that he is the way to live is to believe that when you entrust your entire life to God, saying, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done to the Father, that Christ becomes the model. He becomes our hope in the end of the story. That because Christ rose from the grave, we can be confident that the same spirit in him is now also in us and we'll raise from the grave. Because Christ now lives in glory, we can be confident that those who follow him will live in glory. You have the promise of God, the people of God, and you have the Son of God. All of those building one simple concept into how God will bless your life. Trust him. Trust his word. Trust the previous examples. And trust in who he wants you to model your whole life after. Trust him. And so we live in a time where there's messages about how to be blessed. 
You can't outgive God. If you just have a seed of faith, he'll bless you with prosperity and riches. That's not the blessing we're talking about. If you work really hard and you prove your spiritual worth to God, he will meet you and bless you. That's not the blessing we're talking about. We're talking about a threefold blessing that we find in the strategy that Peter has been offering, over, offering us over the course of this letter. Love people with compassion. You're gonna feel it in your heart. Love them with action. It's gonna be on display. You're gonna care for them. And love even your enemies. And in doing so, trust God with your entire life. That is the inherited blessing of God. Love the family of God. Bless the enemies of God. And trust in the word of God. And it says, you will be blessed. And that is the best ending that your circumstances can ever get to.